Our New Testament reading may be found in your pew Bibles on page 989 and 990. There you will find John 21. I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed them himself in this way. Gathered there were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to him, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? And they said, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast the net and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. The net was so full, but it was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he had said to him for the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Winter. Before we begin a a story, as I stand here, um, I'm reminded of something that happened just a few short weeks ago. Um, As some of you will perhaps remember, a group of 21 folks from here in Mount Pleasant um, traveled to Scotland uh, on a tour of Reformation history to visit Scotland and to see historic sites and so on and so forth, led by our own Barbara 
Laura Fox, um, who did a great job, along with capably helped by Diane Hader, who played Bells a moment ago. Um, in any case, we went to St. Andrews. Um, and not the most important thing, but some of us had our picture taken next to the 18th green on the old course. <laughs> but I digress. Um, we visited the chapel uh, at St. Andrews University where in June of 1559, and we think this sanctuary is old, um, John Knox preached. And the sanctuary is still as it was then. The pulpit is still the same, and it's not roped off or anything. You can climb up in the pulpit. So, uh, thank you. A number of us, a uh, number of folks did, I among them. And as I was standing in the pulpit, um, noticing profound things like this is a lot smaller than the pulpit I'm used to, and less open so on and so forth. Um, somebody was taking a video and a member of the group, I will not say who, said, now, spread your hands and say, so here's the thing. <laughs> and I said, why, do I do that? <laughs> Apparently I do. I have a thing, who knew? No, I, kn I knew I said that, I just didn't know I said it all that often, apparently, <laughs> in any event. I'll try not to do that today. Let's pray. Here we are, O oh Lord, gathered once again in your presence. We've sung your praises and admitted who we have been confident of your grace, and now we listen for your word. We've heard the words of scripture read. We ask that you would be among us by your Holy Spirit. Open our ears and our hearts that we might receive your living word, even Jesus Christ, and in him have life abundant and eternal. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to come back in just a moment to uh, that chapel in St. Andrews, but... Before I do, I want to say that it's a perfectly normal and natural, perfectly human and understandable human, perfectly understandable reaction when life is changing and shifting, the ground seems to be moving under our very feet, and we don't know what's coming next. In times like those, it is completely natural to reach out for that which is most familiar and known, to look for that which is comfortable, that with which we are secure, that which is predictable. And that's what Simon Peter did and the other six who were 
with him that evening. After all, that was the way their life was, in turmoil, upset, different. Their whole world had changed in just a few short days. Yes, they had seen the risen Lord. John tells us in his gospel that this appearance that we hear of today is the third, so they've seen him twice before. But in some ways, that had made the change even bigger. Because after all, death, they knew. Even death at the hands of the Romans, as barbaric and cruel and unjust as it was, was familiar, was part of their world. So their grief as deep as it was, as profound as it was, was at least a thing in the realm of the normal, part of human experience. And although they must have been overjoyed to see their risen Lord, certainly their grief overcome by joy, still their world must have been turned upside down even more profoundly by that. Death ended? What can that mean? Something we can only perhaps just begin to imagine. It would likely take them the rest of their lives to make sense of it. So, at the beginning of all that turmoil, in the midst of it, Peter says something like, I don't know about you, but I'm going fishing. My guess is he just needed to smell the salt air again, to feel the spray on his skin, hear the slap of the waves against the side of the boat and the song of the net sliding into the water. The ropes, feel the ropes running across his palms. All the things he knew and remembered so well. And the other six, Thomas, Nathaniel, Zebedee's two boys and two others said, Yeah, we'll go with you. They just needed to touch something solid. Something they knew something familiar, if only for just one night. It's just the way people are. Scriptures and human history are full of examples of it. Take the Hebrew people, for example. This week, unrelated to this sermon, I was asked by someone if I knew the story of Meribah, I did, and perhaps you do too. I went back and checked the details of it to make certain I was remembering it correctly. Do you know the story of Meribah? Do you know that word? Does it sound familiar to you? It comes from the 17th chapter of Exodus, where the people complain to Moses because they have no water, they're thirsty. And there's no, they're in the desert, after all. They ask, why did you bring us out of Egypt 
to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses called out to the Lord saying, wait for it. What am I going to do with these people? That's a prayer for you. And the Lord told Moses to take his staff, the one he had used to part the Red Sea, and to strike the rock on Mount Horeb with it. And when he did, a spring of water burst forth, saving the people. And so the place was known as Meribah, because the word Meribah sounds like the Hebrew word for complain or quarrel. To remind the Hebrew people that there they had complained against the Lord and he'd saved them anyway. But do you hear it? After having been delivered miraculously from slavery in Egypt, having seen all the plagues and the miracles by which God had given them freedom, the people are constantly complaining, wanting to go back to what's familiar. At least there they knew they would have water and meat to eat, food to eat. It just seems to be human nature siren song of what we remember, the way things used to be, the good old days, even though they likely never were really as good or as golden as we remember them. Well, I want to go back to St. Andrews because when we got there and got off the bus, the group of us, before we went into the quadrangle at the university where the entrance to the, uh, the chapel was, where John Knox had preached, to see that, we had to wait for a few minutes because there was another tour group there and their guide was talking to them about some such. And um, Jimmy, our guide, wanted to tell us uh, a few things we were going to be seeing inside, some of the historical information. So we stood around. And I noticed on the ground there were some stones set in in some sort of design. And uh, after the other group was finished and went off wherever they went next, um, Jimmy gathered us together and pointed to where I had been standing and said, you may have noticed um, next to the road there in the cobblestones there are some letters. Well, that's what I had seen. I had been standing on them pretty much. Um, I just thought they were Greek letters. We were at a university after all. It was a what looked to me kind of like the Cairo, you know, the X and the P as we see it, the Greek letters that are uh, that we see periodically stand for Christos. Um, it was a P and an H. He said those letters there, it's, it's actually a P and an H, stand for Patrick Hamilton. That's where he was burned at the stake as one of Scotland's first martyrs of the Reformation. Patrick Hamilton was the 
child, the son of a noble family at the time when uh, Scotland was still uh, Roman Catholic and had gone to study uh, at university in Paris on the continent and there had become familiar with the writings of a fellow by the name of Martin Luther. And in fact, he met Martin Luther at one point and was very uh, influenced by and convinced by Luther's uh, understanding of we're saved not by works but by grace alone. He came back to Scotland and began to teach and after being challenged went back to uh, the continent and studied some more and, and uh, wrote a little book and then was called back to Scotland to tell, to proclaim, to share what he was convinced was the truth of the gospel that Luther had recovered and he went back to St. Andrews. And after a time of preaching, he was called before the authorities in the church and tried and given the opportunity to recant. He was accused and convicted of heresy. He refused to recant. And so he was taken outside to the very spot where those letters were later inlaid and burned at the stake. which for me raised two questions. One, personal, perhaps it would occur to any of us, which is this. Would I have had that kind of faith? Put in that situation, asked to stand up for what I believe to be the truth, my understanding of God's grace in Jesus Christ in the face of death. Would I have had the courage of my convictions? I don't know. And I'm just as happy not to be put to the test as I expect most of us are. Not just Patrick Hamilton, but across the years, Scotland had two reformations Hundreds of Protestants and Presbyterians were executed during that time by hanging, by burning at the stake, by drowning in other means. Which leads to a deeper question, which is, is that really what the church is about? Somehow I think not. Orthodoxy, right belief, the conviction that what we believe, the way of being the church is so important that if someone disagrees with us in what it means to follow Christ, not only is it important enough to die for, but important enough to kill for? No, again, it seems clear to me not. And so I come to John's text with that question. What does it mean to be the church? What is this anyway? And again, I think this passage gives us two things to think about. The first is that 
we follow Jesus' direction. Notice that even though in a time of turmoil and change and great anxiety, the apostles go back to doing what is familiar, Jesus does not correct them or condemn them or say, you shouldn't be doing that. But he gives them direction. They are unsuccessful completely. They fish all night and catch not a thing. And when the sun comes up, they see a guy standing on the shore who calls out to them and says, what's your cat? What have you caught? Nothing. Put your net on the other side, he says. Now, these are professional fishermen. If there had been any sign of fish on that side of the boat, don't you think they'd have tried it? And this guy standing on the shore tells them, on the other side. And something inside them knows, intuits, senses that, okay, maybe he knows something we don't know. And they let the nets down on the other side and catch the largest catch they'd ever seen. Even though in a time of change we may feel called back to old ways that are familiar, that make us feel comfortable, we are called to follow Jesus' direction. Only then will we be productive. Only then will we be successful. Only then will we be faithful. And then a bit later, Jesus takes Peter aside and asks the questions that Bob talked about in the children's sermon. Three times he asks Peter, echoing and correcting, of course, the three denials that Peter has made earlier. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Which tells us, I think, it's not about doctrine or right belief, or orthodoxy, as important as those things may be, they are not ultimate. We are called to relationship. To our brothers and sisters, to all the world around us in the name of Christ, to feed and tend and care for those whom Jesus came to save. Before we went to Scotland, Dr. Elliot reminded me of a quote, told me of a quote that I was not familiar with from the Swiss theologian Emil Brunner, who says this, the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. Where there is no mission, there is no church. And where there is neither church nor mission, there is no faith. 
my friends. We are called, even in a time of uncertainty and transition, a time of change, which it certainly is, to remember that what we are about is Christ's mission in the world, to care for those around us through things like organizations like Hands of Christ, iBeam, Hope House, and also in ways like teaching Sunday school, Stephen ministry, hospital visits, wherever God is calling you. Being missional is not about missions per se. It is about responding to God's call in Jesus Christ. Stepping out in those ways that may be exciting, challenging, scary. Knowing that God is with us each and every step of the way. So, here's the thing. <laughs> Whenever we find ourselves in a time of transition and change, perhaps like now, whenever we find ourselves in such times drawn back to ways that are familiar and comforting, tried and true, that we know, just as Peter and the disciples were, Jesus does not, will not condemn or correct us for that, just as he didn't condemn or correct them. But remember that they were unsuccessful, unproductive, when they did what they knew. It was only when they obeyed and followed Jesus' directions that they were productive. And not only that, but landed a catch likely bigger than any they had ever caught before. Because that's the way God is. Calling us forward, following his grace and love in Jesus Christ into all the world. And that's the good news for today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.